0: Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimfni Dronik.
1: I'm host and producer Cody Dronik. Our show airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. Our guests tonight include Kathy Culbert and Wade Davis. Wade Davis is the author of 20 books, including One River, The Wayfinder, and Into the Silence, which won the 2012 Samuel Johnson Prize, the top award for literary nonfiction in the English language. Explorer-in-residence at the National Geographic Society from 1999 to 2013, he is currently Professor of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia. In 2016, he was made a member of the Order of Canada. In 2019, he became an honorary citizen of Colombia.
0: Wade Davis, you've joined us from your home in Bowen Island today to talk about your new book, Magdalena, River of Dreams. Welcome.
2: Thanks, Timmy. Nice to be with you.
0: You and I have been friends for nearly 50 years. And as I read this beautiful book about the history and the hope and the stories of the Magdalena River and Colombia through which it flows, I reflected about your deep love for that magical country and how it's been a constant throughout those years. The entire time I've known you, you just light up when you tell stories about Colombia.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, all of us fall in love with the uh, the, as travelers with the first country that kind of um gives us license to be free and, and for me it really was Colombia. it was the the landscape you know the the, the desert coastal regions and the vast wetlands, mm-hmm. and the tropical forests rising to bucolic verdant valleys that are crested by you know snow-capped mountains and the mysterious potamos and all these formations kind of Saved the way to a wider world that I'd spend my life kind of exploring, and and this sort of strange love affair between a boy and a uh, country and its people began kind of innocently enough in 1967 when I was um, just 13. Um, when my mother told me, and she was sort of a modest but determined Canadian woman, that Spanish was a language of the future, mm-hmm. and she worked all year in a elementary school as a secretary to earn enough money. Allow, allow me to join a group of schoolboys who so the teacher was taking to Columbia in the summer of 1968. Now, we forget that in that time, most Canadians had never been in an airplane. So the South American destination was terribly exotic. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was the youngest of the boys and the most fortunate because I, uh, they sort of were billeted out with wealthy families um, and spent a sort of sweltering season in the streets of Cali. I was with a more modest family in the mountains above the, the valley at the edge of trails that um, ran west of the Pacific. And I didn't see any of the other Canadian lads all summer. And whereas many of them succumbed to what the Colombians call manitis or homesickness, uh, I felt that I finally found home, you know, and there was something about the 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 intensity of the way that the Colombian people embraced the kind of fragility of the human spirit. I, I You know, the kind of classic Colombian scene, you know, an indulgent uh, father, uh, uh, grandmother who muttered to herself on a porch overlooking fruit trees and flower beds, you know, children too numerous to keep track of, uh, an angelic sister who more than once carried me and her brother home half drunk to a mother kind beyond words who stood by the garden gate, feigning anger as she tapped her toe on the stone steps. And it was just an extraordinary experience, and then some years later, I returned to Columbia at the age of nineteen or twenty um, with a one-way ticket and a small backpack of clothes and two books: uh, Lawrence's Taxonomy of Vascular Plants and Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And at the time, I believed that bliss was an objective state that you could achieve just by opening yourself unabashedly to the world. And so I both literally and metaphorically drank from every stream, even tire tracks in the road. And naturally I was always sick, but even that was part of the dynamic or the, the, the excitement, you know, malaria fevers that would rise in the night and break in the dawn. And along the way I became an acolyte of the, of the great legendary botanical explorer, Richard Evans Schultes. And in time when I would write his biography, uh, a book called one river, um, it became, in a sense, both a map of dreams for Colombian youth, who by that point could not travel within their own country, and it also sort of painted a picture of Colombia that defied all of the um, kind of grotesque cliches. And so, unbeknownst to me, it became a, more than a cult book in Colombia. It became a, a, a book of almost um, of hope and redemption, if you will, um, and and and. Um, and, and it told the truth about Colombia. You know, I mean, yes, Colombia has been wracked by a three-way war that left over fifty years, two hundred forty thousand dead, seven million displaced, to hundred thousand missing. But at no point in time were there more than two hundred thousand, maybe three hundred thousand combatants in a nation of fifty million. So the vast majority of Colombians were innocent victims caught in the vice of war. Um, uh, and um, a war that never would have lasted a week if it hadn't been for the fuel of cocaine that fired the whole horde affair. You know, um, you know, at the height of Escobar's power, you know, he was putting 80 tons of cocaine into America a week, a month rather. You know, generating 17 million dollars of profits a day. The the accountants budgeted a thousand dollars. Uh, a week just to buy elastic bands to wrap the illicit cash in. And so <laughs> the, the 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 FARC, for example, um, the dominant leftist group, uh, in the year before the signing of the peace agreement in Cartagena in and the negotiations in Havana, in that last year, even though they were down to about 6,000 cadre, mostly young kids in search of three meals a day, they nevertheless made over 600 million Dollars U.S. Um, through extortion and drug trafficking. So if you give me the, you know, Calgary Boy Scouts and six hundred million dollars, I can wreak havoc in all of Alberta. So you know we have to remember that the the the, the, the fuel of the war was cocaine consumption, and so you know the responsibility for Colombia's agonies uh, in good measure lie with um, with uh, all those who've used uh, illicit cocaine. And all countries that have facilitated the black market trade by prohibiting the drug while doing nothing to really curb its, its use. I mean, a, a way of thinking about it, how would the Americans feel if Canada, for example, had patterns of drug consumption in bars and boardrooms across the country and laws that facilitated black market trade but enforcement of those laws so lax as to not really dent that trade that uh, 85 million Americans were forced to flee their homes, or that's really what happened in Colombia. You know, 220,000 dead, 100,000 missing, uh, five million people fleeing their their own homeland to live abroad, uh, seven million internally displaced, and it all comes down to to cocaine consumption. And so the amazing thing is that despite that that imposition, um, and not that the Colombians weren't themselves. Obviously, you know, culpable. I mean, they were generating the product, but the product would never have, you know, needed consumers to 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 create this kind of fireball of, of illicit cash and so on. And mm-hmm. and yet despite that, you know, over fifty years of war, uh, the Colombians maintained civil society, and democracy, their cities, created millions of acres of national parks, sought restitution with. First Nations in a way that no nation-state can match and paved the way for a kind of an economic uh, and cultural renaissance as now with the peace, two generations of young kids forced to flee abroad are returning to the country with skill sets in every conceivable endeavor. You know, and it speaks, I mean, the news that was announced today speaks to the heart of who the Colombian people are. You know, the, the peace agreement negotiated in Havana and uh, had, had something on the order of, I think, 58 clauses to it. Um, and the implementation of the agreement was had a price tag of something on the order of $45 billion. And that came about just as oil prices collapsed, and that was Colombia's major source of foreign revenue. And at the same time, they were asked to absorb the greatest humanitarian crisis in the history of the Americas. And that was over... million Venezuelans fleeing the Maduro regime in Caracas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And really important point to make that whereas the Americans um, said to be the richest nation on earth uh, turned away and tore apart families at the Mexican border who themselves were fleeing the chaos of the drug trade that has now moved to Central America, again, a drug trade fueled exclusively by the American consumption of the drug, and a dislocation caused by American foreign policy during the Reagan era and the anti communist crusade in favor of the Contras. Now these, these families turning up at the American border, 525 children are now isolated with no one knowing who their parents are. Colombia, by contrast, in a moment of its greatest need um, to enforce and, and, and realize the problems of the peace process at the end of 50 years of war, suddenly was confronted by this humanitarian crisis. And what did they do? They not only didn't turn people away, they welcomed them, they housed them, they fed them, they put their kids in schools and gave the elders medical treatment. And today it was announced by President Duque that Colombia has decided to give legal status in a single sweep to over 1.8, possibly 2 million Venezuelans who are now living on Colombian soil. And it, it, was, it, it, it is a practical move, of course, because it'll you can't have 2 million people on your land who aren't registered, who aren't, you know, especially during the crisis of the pandemic of COVID, you've got to know who these people are, where they are. You have to have some sense of, of being able to reach out to them uh, as a public health official and so on. But at the same time, beyond the practicalities of that decision, it represents an extraordinary generosity of the spirit that that should humble every nation state. I mean, you know, here we have a country, Colombia, that's borne the brunt of the global consumption of this horrible drug, struggling um, um, to find its way to peace, and they turn around and absorb this crisis without a hesitation. It tells you a lot about the Colombian spirit.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, as unflinchingly as you Speak to the truth of of all of those horrors. Uh, Your story today and and the stories throughout the book illustrate that incredible sense of humanity and hope that is also prevalent throughout all the the lands you traveled along the river.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's very important, you know, that the, you know, you know, yes, cocaine has colored the image of Colombia. Uh, But Colombia is not a place of of, of violence and drugs. It's a place of colores y cariño, where the the people have endured uh, precisely because of their character, which is informed by an incredible spirit of place and incredible pride in a landscape that is without doubt the most most, um, ecologically, uh, topographically, uh, geographically uh, and certainly biologically diverse place on the planet. This is a great wealth of Columbia. It is the richest nation in the world in terms of biodiversity per acre area. Um, there's no place in Columbia more than a day removed from every known ecological uh, niche to be found on planet Earth. I mean, this is really a land of abundance um, and beauty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And culture. I mean, set of Columbia, Colombia. I write in the book a great deal about music and uh, um, you know, it's said that Columbia is a land of a thousand rhythms. In fact, ethnomusicologists have identified a thousand twenty-five. Uh, and, and the mother, you know, I spoke and spent good time with a good friend of mine now, Carlos Vivas, who's a, the legendary Latin American sort of pop star. I mean, he is the great, just won the Latin Grammys. You know, he's just, a, he's a voice of Columbia. And, you know, as Carlos said, you know, the mother of all Colombian music, you that got tambora, merengue, poro, uh, salsa, is cumbia. But the mother of cumbia is a river, the river Magdalena, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is a theme that people refer, I come back to all the time, you know, to clean the national soul, you must clean the river. To clean the river will be to clean the national soul. And this is, it's curious, you know, I did this research over five years and Visited basically every town and hamlet, and every uh, um, bend in the river, and every town and hamlet in the in the the Cuenca, which is home to 80 percent of Colombians. It generates uh, 80 percent of the national economy. It lights the cities. You know, it's the the quarter of commerce as is the Mississippi. But it's also like the Mississippi, the fountain of culture, the repository of poetry and literature, music and prayer. And wherever I went, and with who whoever I spoke to the message kept coming across, you know, the river is us. We are the river to clean our soul. We must clean the river to clean the river is to clean our soul. And, you know, Colombia is a place where, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you're a great writer, you? And, and, you know, magical realism is is said to be Latin America's great gift to Latin American literature. And, and the truth of the matter is that Gabo or, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Nobel laureate for literature, Um, was actually a journalist. He was an observer. He was a practicing journalist all of his life who just happened to live in a land where heaven and earth converge on a regular basis to reveal glimpses of the divine. Mm -hmm. And this book, Magdalena, is just filled with these moments. Like, there was this great character I really love called Morita, Morita de los Monetis. He was was just a rice farmer who who fell in love. He was a campesino. He fell in love with manatees, these sort of curious, iconic animals of the great wetlands of the Caribbean coastal plain of Colombia, and uh, he became like an avatar of them, you know, and uh, he used their power to stand up from afar to paramilitaries. the paramilitaries. and book is full of wonderful stories that's in facing down both sides, including the military, all three sides. But one day we were around uh, a little wetland near where he lived. And he works with school children all the time. And he, he told me that he and the kids had found just around this little wetland 75 species of butterflies. And I said, why? you know, that's amazing. Because in all of Canada, that's probably a third that we have or maybe even half of what we have in the second largest country on on the planet. And he looked at me with a wink and he said, you know, but Hernán de la es que in Colombia una mariposa es solamente flor que poripolar he said, my brother, you know, the thing is that uh, you got to understand in Colombia, a butterfly is just a flower that knows how to fly. Uh, <laughs> that's why we have so many. And Colombia is like that. You know, it, it's like, it, it, you know, um, um, you know you're, you're encountering, you know, poetry uh, with every footstep.
0: Yeah, it, it wasn't until I read this book when... Was- over and over there are these incredible people that we meet where where the the way that they are the way they interact with the world the, the the some of the atrocities they survive with this amazing resilience it it just made me think the landscape is magic realism it in it it is in their dna they it's it's just no wonder that um they think it, in these terms that are so much broader than what we might be used to.
2: Well, they you know it's the landscape definitely always you know informs character and you know Colombia um, is dominated by you know these these incredible. I mean, first of all, if you look at its position on the South American continent, it's you know the northwest corner. So, it, in terms of, for example, botany, it's got floristic elements that are coming south from Central America. Amazonian influences coming up from the northwest uh, corner of the Amazon Basin, Andean influences coming up the Andean Cordillera from the south, Caribbean influences coming south across to the shores um, of, of the continent. So you have this incredible diversity. And, and um, Magdalena is born in this rugged ma- knot of mountains called the Macizo Colombiano, or Colombian Massif, and out of that massif um, emerged many of Colombia's great rivers: the Cauca, the great affluent of the Magdalena, but also the Patia, which flows into the Pacific, and the um, and the Cuc- and the Putumayo, much bigger rivers than the Magdalena, the major affluents of the Amazon that run through the forests of Colombia. Um, and then out of, out of the massif, emerged the three arms of the Cordillera: the Cordillera um, Oriental, which runs up the uh, eastern side of the country. Dividing the Andean part of Colombia from the great eastern plains that run away to the Orinoco and from the great Amazonian forest, and so remember the Amazon of Colombia is itself the size of France. So that's the scale of landscape that we're talking about. And then the Cordillera Central, which comes out of the Massif and sort of runs straight up the um, center of the country until it falls away to the great wetlands of the Caribbean coastal so plain. These. You know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, weapons that shine like mirrors to the heavens. And in the Cordillera Occidental, the Western Range, it delineates or separates the ancient forests of the Chilco on the Pacific from Andean Colombia. And, of course, the Amazon used to flow into the Pacific before the rise of the Andes. So that huge department of the Chilco that runs the length of the country along the Pacific shore, literally is a forest that was once connected to the Amazon and has now had 40 million years of isolation and therefore speciation. So you have this extraordinary uh, bounty. And as one crosses the Macizo Colombiano by horse to this volcanic landscape, you know, dotted with these extraordinary páramos, unique to Colombia, these ecological formations um, uh, that are so beautiful, uh, you, you know, you follow following ancient Incaic roads that fall away like mercury through the cloud forest. And there, there's a point where you, the Magdalena bursts from the headwater lake that gives it rise and it's just a brook and as you're walking down alongside of it, it, if you touch the ground to your right, you're touching the foundations, the beginnings of the Cordillera Oriental. And if you just hop over the river and touch the ground to your left, you're touching the birth of the Cordillera Central. So you can Literally, as you're walking down this beautiful ancient stone road, um, narrow in the forest, you can reach down and touch the geographical and the geological origins of a great nation.
0: Mm -hmm. As the Rio Magdalena tells us her stories of of beautiful things and also of conquest and genocide and slavery, it also serves as this powerful. Uh, metaphor for the the cycle of renewal and resilience, and ultimately, I felt this book was drenched in hope. And as my last question today, Wade, I was I was wondering, what the Magdalena can teach us as Canadians about how Canada treats our rivers?
2: Well, I think you know it, it's this whole irony of of um, of fresh water. You know, we 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 baptize our children by dripping water. In the form of the cross over their brow, or we dip them in, in basins, uh, immersing them in, in the sacred essence. And then at the same time, um, that water is drawn from rivers that we befouled with our waste in a way that is shameful. I mean, uh, you know, people don't realize that it's the fascinating thing about water is it's never created nor destroyed. You know, the hydrological cycle um, keeps it in movement. It can change shape from solid and when it's frozen to liquid to a gaseous state when it becomes mist and, and evaporates but that basic cycle of you know um uh of uh, evapotranspiration or you know tra- uh, evaporation condensation in clouds precipitation in return in that cycle of life that we're all part of um uh, means the water is never created nor destroyed so the water that you drink today is exactly the same water that slaked the thirst of the dinosaurs and if you took all of the water to be found on the planet and put it into a gallon jar, what's available to us to to um, to drink would fill a teaspoon. So the way we squander this freshwater resource is really uh, extraordinary. And and one thing we've learned from COVID, finally, perhaps, is that we are a biological species on a living planet. And, uh, you know, the the if there's one kind of uh, redemptive element of the pandemic is that we live to see the resilience of the earth, you know, suddenly overnight as human activities um, came to a halt, wild creatures re-inhabited the cities of Europe. Uh, uh, rivers running through cities like Medellin became trout streams again. Uh, the sky over cities in India and Pakistan was suddenly clear in the Himalaya could be see, seen scoring the, high, the skyline for the first time in generations. Flamingos in the wetlands of Mumbai, uh, wild boar in the streets of Barcelona, Cayman, blackening the beaches of Baja um, California. You know, then if you took the whole presence of our hominid species, not just going back to our progenitor Homo erectus, but all the way back to Homo erectus, you know, uh, 2.3, 2.5 million years ago, if you took that entire hominid lineage and and placed it on a clock, uh, a 24-hour clock of the history of the world. Uh, of the planet, um, the entire hominid presence wouldn't take up a second on a 24-hour clock. So we're a femoral presence on the Earth, and and we will win in the end. The the, the planet will endure. Mm -hmm. Um, But meantime, um, you know, it behooves us to pay attention to our place in the planet. And I think that's a lesson of COVID. We're part of the natural world, and they disturb the natural world, and there will be repercussions. But at the same time, you know, when you return to Colombia, you know, I think of the voices of, of, for example, the Atawaco Mamos, the sun priests. But, I mean, I mean, one of the incredible things about Colombia is that in the bloodstained continent, there are still peoples like the Atawakos and the Kogi and the Wiwa um, who, in a sense, were never conquered um, and remain ruled by a ritual priesthood of Mamos. And, you know, for the training for the priesthood, the, the acolytes are kept in the shadowy world of darkness for 18 years. And when we're, you know, enculturating the values, which include the idea that their prayers maintain the cosmic balance of the world. And after 18 years of intense training, they're suddenly taken out and they see the world in all of its beauty. And they go on a journey to the heart of the world from the sea to the ice, the ice back to the sea. All the time, the priest telling you, you see it's as a, it's as I promise you, it's that beautiful. It's yours to, Protect. They don't think of humans as being part of the problem, but we are the solution. And because it is our in our hands that we hold the fate of the world. And so, for example, in terms of the, the peace process, one of my good friends, mammo Camillo, said to me, you know, you know, um, you know, peace no vale nada si es solamente una manera en que los varios lados del conflicto pueden unificarse para mantener una guerra contra la naturaleza. Tenemos que hacer paz. And what he said is, you know, peace won't matter anything. um, If it's just an excuse for the three sides of the conflict to come together to maintain a war against nature, it's time to make peace with the entire world, the entire natural world. And the Mamos, you know, they make ritual payments at the mouth of the Magdalena to this day. Um, Traditionally, they embarked on pilgrimages 1,500 kilometers to the source of the river, and they would pause at every community ascertaining the awareness of that community, the consciousness of that community vis-a-vis the river itself. And they say that the measure of the awareness and the profundity of the people is the way they treat their natural rivers. And they say that the human body is itself a series of rivers, that the blood that runs through our veins is no different than the water that runs through the channel of the river. And in that sense, they're actually quite accurate scientifically because you know, you know, we are all part of this hydrological cycle. And when human beings pass away, um, whether we're cremated or whether we are buried, eventually the fluid in our body slips away and moves as effortlessly to the ocean as the waters of the river flow to the sea.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are profoundly all of the same cycle. Okay, my friend, I'm going to leave it there because we are out of time and I am so very grateful for um for the five years that, that you contributed to this this story and um for all the work that you do on behalf of all of us. Thank you so much for joining us today on CJSW Rogers Block.
2: Thanks very much, uh, Jim
1: Kathy Culbert grew up in the Canadian Rockies. In 1974, she became one of the first female national park wardens in Canada. In 1977, she was a member of the first all-women expedition of Mount Logan, and in 1989 was on the first all-women ski traverse of the Columbia Mountains from the Bugaboos to Rogers Pass. We got a hold of Kathy to talk about her latest release, Vertical Reference, about the life and times of helicopter pilot Jim Davies.
0: Kathy Calvert, thank you so much for joining me on CJSW Writer's Block today to talk about your new book, Vertical Reference, The Life of Legendary Mountain Helicopter Rescue Pilot Jim Davies. The people that you talk about in in this group of visionaries, uh, and you're one of them as the first female national park warden in Canada, (laughs) you you have the opposite of that, right? You're your sort of mindset always was like how can i be responsible for myself and and yeah what I, I, how do i get myself
3: out of it right yeah um mainly because uh i, I grew up with a a father who had uh, um you know started training us to hunt and fish and everything in the mountains when we were just young and we just carried that over into into the mountains and with the alpine club so we had we had good uh uh teachers for you know uh, through the Alpine Club by joining the the, the group, um, so but there was still quite a bit that we had to learn for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But I was yeah, it was good to have had that because then I was comfortable when uh, I joined the warden service because I actually had more climbing background than most of the wardens. So
0: right, yeah, that helped a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, and then and that made you uh, a very Essential resource because you knew how to participate in those difficult mountain rescues, right? Where climbing was also part of the.
3: Yeah, and uh, we we I, I started in Yoho, so we didn't get a lot of uh, uh, as as high a number of rescues as as BAMP, but we still had our fair share. And um, yeah, you had to be able to. The first thing you had to, to know is that you have to look after your yourself and your own team. Mm-hmm. So that's priority. You don't want to put the rescuers in in too you know, a jeopardy or a situation that, that shouldn't uh they shouldn't get into, for instance. And this is often um the call of the helicopter pilot because uh like Jim knew the mountains very well and where they could get to. And uh he would often call whether they could, you know, proceed with the rescue or whether it was just too dangerous at the time.
2: Mhm. Mhm.
3: So he became you know, quite a uh, well, a lot of the ones who are in the public safety uh learn to rely on him um for his his vast knowledge and his abilities and uh and and totally trust him um you I don't know if you' have read the introduction, but Peter Furman, who was the um uh alpine specialist as i've said, wrote the um introduction and he does mention at the end that it uh, becomes um he says, uh, basically, he was the founder of the Canadian Mountain Guides Association and the Federation of Alpine Guides, and they were a team. But what Jim does and what I do once I arrive on the, on the accident scene is keep us alive, and we have a bond. We trust each other. The rope connects him with me um, is a spiritual link that even surpasses friendship. And and that's quite true, and everybody mm-hmm. in the warden service was felt that way. Uh, mm-hmm. about Jim. So he uh uh yeah. you have when when you're on line with life and death and you're under the helicopter, you have absolute faith in in that pilot.
0: Yeah. And and I was reflecting on that because I had the great privilege of knowing Jim when I was a little girl and my right. dad worked for the park service up in the Right. There there it wasn't it isn't just his knowledge and his experience is it. It is also the the soul of the man. I mean, he is so calm and so yeah. thoughtful. Like nothing. I can't remember him hurrying ever no. or, or seeming to hurry. Even though in those rescues, as I was reading the the stories, you know, it time must have been been so much a factor in the back of his mind, but. That personality to do things calmly, the right way, thoughtfully, yeah. think it out, not take unnecessary risks.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it has to be. To a, in, yeah, a, sort of go
3: into a different zone of of uh, of awareness, and and time kind of slows down, and and that's often the case with rescuers as well. You mm-hmm. know, they're doing the same thing, and and you you have to have the personality to step back and and let time slow down and just deal with what's right in front of you and know all the variables and the risks and yeah Jim was um always extremely calm um it was just his personality I guess but uh he's also um uh fairly shy and kind of private <laughs> um so writing the story when I first uh thought about it I'd known him for quite a while and basically been on rescues you know that he'd pulled me into but um I you know I haven't sat down and had an hour long conversation with him because he wasn't that kind of a guy, but um, he was very very open. He was you know he really was uh, generous with his his time and his stories, and and I found him very uh, warm and um, receptive to um, any any of the stories or interviews that we were doing.
0: True, yeah, and truly i wonder. Yeah, I, I can imagine it helped your process. He's yeah. a he's a wonderful human being. So what was important to you about writing this book?
3: Um well, as it turned out, I I was a little weary of, of uh of doing it. I was aware that he, he wanted uh people were basically his friends uh knew his story and knew him better than I did at that time. And they realized uh much more readily than I did, was that he was really part of a huge community. And, and he he touched on on all aspects of of the Banff and the Canmore communities. Uh, so he was he was more than just a pilot. He was also sort of a, uh, a well known person in town who um, uh, really helped out a lot of people whenever they needed it. Um, and and they they knew enough about him that they felt his story was was vital to um, understanding. Well, certainly the the, the beginning of mountain, the real serious mountain rescues in in Canada, Um but also, that you know the rest of his life and how and how that went uh so they convinced me that it was really worthwhile doing and uh I, I, I agree i finally I had a chance to talk to Jim, and um we talked about it and um I thought, okay, this is going to be really interesting, and writing the book was an absolute joy i I enjoyed every every minute of it talking to people that uh um that I knew and some people that I didn't know and uh just getting into the whole spirit of, of of the time and and the person, and uh, mm-hmm. and this is what uh, you know. I think a lot of the people in the in the community kind of uh, were able to to say was important. You know, it wasn't just about Jim. It was also about a time and an era, and a, a challenge that faced uh, you know the, the warden service um, in in, in the, well, the people that were coming to. Uh, Into the parks, and Mm -hmm. considering how many hats they had to wear, so um, I might say that the warden service at that time was was a fairly generic warden service. They were responsible for pretty well everything, and um, they. uh, So one of the things that came along, which some of the earlier wardens didn't sign up for, was mountain rescue, but. Uh, after a number of uh, serious, very serious accidents, uh, the parks realized they had to have a, a rescue organization. And uh, the first wardens were <laughs> dumbfounded because they were basically cowboys. and Now they're, you know, having to scale these mountains to get people off them, which they <laughs> they didn't think should have been there in the first place.
2: <laughs>
3: um, and they're rescuing. You know, they're using. You know, they're they're risking their lives, even in, in training situations. You know, it's, it's even training situations can be pretty dangerous. Um, so uh, it was a different warden service that that uh, that they worked with back then, and they had to teach them right from, you know, A to V to even to, to how to climb a mountain. And uh, yeah. And so, but they did it, and it was their job, and they they did it with great courage, and and um, and then passed it on to the younger people who were already. Getting into climbing on their own, like myself and and uh, Tim Roger, for instance, and uh, some of the other basic rescue people that have been there for many years, my sister right. included.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So really, it was a, an amazing convergence of of people and um, the way the world was changing that has become this um, sustained kind of legend that Canada needs to be. Incredibly proud of, yes, you know yeah. that we have have developed these skills and resources and trained younger generations and and yeah. uh, get better at it all the time. I imagine, hey,
3: yes, uh, but of course, what happened there was that as as time went by, um, the uh, difficulty in um, the rescues also increased because uh, the Canadian Rockies were suddenly uh, attracting. Uh, major league climbers, you know, to do first ascents.
0: Mm-hmm. In very,
3: very bad places. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, like the north face of Mount Alberta, just the you know, places that you looked that are awful. <laughs> you <know? Yeah>. um, <laughs> and uh yet they, they were a new ascent. So the uh the caliber of climbing amongst the and uh, knowledge amongst boarding service had to rise to meet the talents of of the actual climbers out there. And once that sort of became obvious, then it, it became a specialized organization. And, and now, right now, the wardens that do that—they're actually just public safety people because of changes in government. But they're—they're uh, they're a specialized team, and and they're busy. You know, they're—they're they're busy all the time, but they—they don't involve themselves in any other part of the park. So they're, 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 everything's become quite a bit more specialized, which allows them to really streamline their their rescue. Um, mm-hmm. A bit capability, mm-hmm. and screen who 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 is on their team, and uh, they were They're very close to right to each other. Um, I remember that that was very you know um, important to to know that you can trust your the pe- the fellow that you're with, <laughs> and that becomes a, a, yeah. a responsibility actually.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
3: Yeah, and and one of the things that. The earlier warden just, you know, realized realizes that uh, if Jim said something, <laughs> you did it that way. <laughs>
0: you
3: know, he didn't argue. <laughs> right. Because, you know, he would let you know if uh, if you were screwing up in some way or, I don't know if that's the right word, but, um, you know, say you were taking too long or you uh, didn't know how things worked, he, he, he didn't have too much patience for that. He wanted to work with people that were, because of the, you know, the uh, ex- existent circumstances he had to work with were ready to uh work fast and, and confidently.
0: yeah well he held himself to very high standards and and would hold others to those same high standards right yeah he and he became,
3: you. i was just going to say he also tra- he didn't really train other pilots so much but he would um he would go through uh, when they when they were thought they were getting ready to be certified as a, as a helicopter pilot. Uh, he would be flying around with them and telling them, you know, exactly how to handle different situations. And mm-hmm. vertical reference was always at the top of the list.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and with very, very good reason, right? Yeah. You don't want to hit the ground without knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so this this almost larger than life, you know, icon of competence. Uh, is still is still with us in, in Bath. Yeah. and and his uh in his retirement it seems to me some of his gentler pursuits have come out. Tell us a little bit about this yes, wonderful but, person now.
3: Yeah. Yes, yeah, he is definitely. Um he's he takes care of his neighbors. He he looks after all his friends. He's very, very generous um he lives a very quiet life now but he's um uh able to um carry on with his passion for painting and he really is a wonderful artist um so um i think he's also into photography and he's got quite a few friends around town that uh that he meets up with and you know for getting out for for walks for photography or or just being at home painting and uh and he's, you know, had a lot of time to reflect on his life, and uh, and when you do that, you, you, um, I think when you get older, you, you uh, have the ability to stand back a little bit and look at what you've done, and realize that this is very different from what most people do, mm-hmm. or you know, the challenges were um, of a different caliber. It, it, it puts you in a different world, kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, I think he began to appreciate, the, you know, his, uh, what he'd accomplished in life, and uh, people certainly told him, and uh, and now he's able to um, reflect on on all these stories, and I get, you know, the inside scoop on on what was uh, how how things went.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. He seems like despite all of his awards and his achievements but he's remained um, the sweet and humble human he's always been.
3: Yeah, I, I wouldn't
0: call him humble. <laughs> no? No. <laughs> Just shy, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Shy is yeah. a better word. Yeah. yeah.
3: Reticent, maybe, but not humble.
0: <laughs> yeah, because um, he, know, he knows he's good.
3: Yeah. He, he, yeah, he realizes anyone can look back and see that. How do you how do you convince a, a pilot who's never done this to actually fly live cargo under a helicopter that you cannot release? That's he says. The minute you have, and other pilots have said this, is that they'd be flying, slinging things around all all day long. But the minute they had somebody under the helicopter that was alive, they were instantly aware of it, and and you know. That was their focus. There's some way right. I have to make sure it gets safely onto the ground.
0: Right. Yeah. I can't dash them into the side of a mountain or Yeah. the, the shed coming in for landing or something. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> what an enormous responsibility.
3: Well, it's it, it, it asks a lot of the pilots and that's why they have uh one of the the uh lower moments of uh Jim's career, unfortunately, was uh uh, the lack of foresight, I think, in in our government in in requiring that the um, helicopter contract, which he had with the parks, was sort of a singular contract, um, but then they decided it had to go out to tender, and in other words, they were trying to find uh, the cheapest uh, helicopter com- company out there to fly rescue missions, and they had no concept at all of what they had, what the pilots had to know to to do this, and. Uh, so, you, de- you know, the, pilot, or the company might win the contract, but they wouldn't necessarily have pilots if were up to that standard. Yeah. And, uh, and that was uh, quite a uh, serious and rather disturbing time for all of us at that point, because, you know, we were one time to the helicopter.
0: And yeah.
3: And we wanted to know who the pilot was. You
0: Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Yeah.
3: And uh, unfortunately, that was the rules of the government. I don't know that they really had to enforce it that way. But uh, parks Canada became more of a business than, a, than actually, you know, run by the government. So they were trying; they were always trying to make ways of uh, find ways of saving money or making money. But um, anyway, that was one of the things they did. They wanted to go to a cheaper contract, and uh, when they did finally give it, give out the contract to a different company uh it was for like 10 dollars an hour less and uh it just didn't uh it didn't add up to the cost of the lives that you know could have been in jeopardy but anyway yeah. they had to um what they did is they had to institute um a, a, a test which had never had before and then this test to qualify pilots has become quite sophisticated since then and uh thank god for that because now they are getting extremely good pilots
0: well, that's a relief to hear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that something came out good came out of that that dark period well, because that that was must have been just so difficult for Jim and everyone. It to, was. Yeah. To to know that you still had to go and rescue people, but that you know it was the, yeah. the Almighty Buck determined the the quality okay. of how that was being done. That's yeah. terrible. Yeah, Yeah
3: well they they were pretty careful they were, they you know like uh, Tim Rogerd was in charge of the public safety in Bath, and this is where most of this was happening and um and he he and Peter were both really aware of this, so uh they didn't re- you know they, it wasn't until they finally came up with a pilot that they could actually know, um, do some of these things that they were had to admit that okay, they have a pilot that passed the test mm-hmm. but that same pilot, unfortunately, still. Um, I mean, there's like 30 or 40 years of of knowing the mountains, you know. So it's mm-hmm. still a big learning curve for any any new pilot to come along.
0: That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my my last question, Kathy, is is for you um, because not only are you a you know a great climber, former park warden, somebody who knows this world inside out. But you've also written quite a few amazing books about um, that whole part of of the world, and I'm just curious because this book was published during, you know, kind of peak pandemic. Mm-hmm. How? What? What? What was different about your experience with this book than your previous books?
3: Um, well, uh, the difference was that uh, uh, it took a lot longer.
0: Mm-hmm. At least,
3: I, I think it was delayed by. Well, not a year, but almost uh, at least eight months. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And
3: then I couldn't, uh, I had a number of interviews, but that's why I'm glad to talk to you today. Um, But uh, we couldn't uh, do uh, too much because I didn't know when the uh, book was actually going to come out. And that was all due to the pandemic. And um, because the publishers themselves, who are Rocky Mountain Books, uh, they they were dealing with all all kinds of problems and, and they you know normally they get out about say ten or fifteen books a year and this year they managed to get out by fall. And um this year in the fall they only managed four books and uh when I realized we were having troubles, we were having troubles with the uh, uh pictures. I had to get the right size. So uh I sort of said, well Either way, you know, Jim is getting older, and um, I really want to hand the book to him while he can still, you know, while it's very important to him.
0: Mm -hmm. And they
3: just buckled down, and they they got it done, and they got it out before Christmas. So uh, uh, I was worried they were going to delay it till next um, April, uh, which would have been, you know, kind of really take the, the wind out of the sails. I mean, I don't know. Uh, there's yeah. so many people looking forward to this, and then they get disappointed because they couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now it seems to be on a roll. I think after, uh, in January and so forth, I think people are now getting uh, into the, you know, they're aware of it's really available, and and uh, I it's think being, it's being sold quite well now.
0: That's great. Okay, so listeners, I've been speaking with Kathy Calvert, and her book is called Vertical Reference. And it is now available at all your your normal places where you love getting books. Vertical Reference: yeah. The Life of Legendary Mountain Helicopter Rescue Pilot Jim Davies. Yeah,
3: I think they'll find it interesting, especially with bear stories. That always intrigues people. Anyway, thank you so much, me uh, for um, uh, having the time to um, to talk about this.
0: Well, thank you so much for writing this book. It uh, is. It's a a beautiful book. I'm so glad to have read it, and thank you for all your time, too, Kathy. All the best to you.
3: Okay, thanks.
0: uh... All right.
1: That was the second part of our two-part interview with Kathy Calvert. If you want to listen to the first half of the interview, you can find it on our website, at cjsw.com in the spoken word section. We are thrilled to announce that former University of Calgary CDWP writer-in-residence Eden Robinson is our feature interview for our March 17th episode. In the third book of her brilliant and captivating trickster trilogy, Eden Robinson delivers an explosive, surprising, and satisfying resolution. All Jared Martin had ever wanted was to be normal, which was already hard enough when he had to cope with Maggie, his hard-partying, gun-toting, literal witch of a mother, indigenous teen life, and his own addictions. When he wakes up naked, dangerously dehydrated, and confused in the basement of his mom's old house in Kitimat, some of the people he loves, the ones who don't see the magic he attracts, just thinks he fell off the wagon after a tough year of sobriety. The truth for Jared is so much worse. He finally knows for sure that he is the only one of his bio-dad Weejit's 535 children who is a trickster too. A shapeshifter with a free pass to other dimensions. Sarah, his ex, is happy he's a magical being, but everyone else he loves is either pissed with him or in mortal danger from the dark forces he's accidentally unleashed. Or both. The scariest of these dark forces is his aunt Georgina. Maniacal ogress hungry for his power, who has sent her posse of flesh eating koi wolves to track him down. Even though his mother resents like hell that Jared has taken after his dad, she is also determined that no one is going to hurt her son. For Maggie, it's simple kill or be killed, bucko. Soon, Jared is at the center of an all out war. A horrifying place to be for the universe's sweetest trickster, whose first instinct is not mischief and mind games, but to make the world a kinder, safer place. Up next, we have local Calgary band Petey Cruiser with their song, Don't Care.
4: I pretend like I don't care Because I don't know how to say Words I want to say When I converse with whoever's listening After I realized the dream, it woke me up still and wet, frozen to a foreign bed. In the city paid to stay, the taxi sees me as prey.
1: been listening to writer's block here on cjsw the opening and closing song for our program is cloud chaser by local band 36 is cloud chaser by local band 36